0: Welcome back to the 107th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex. And today we're going to be flipping through stories talking about the testing of capitalism proposed by Lenin. A interesting thing that happens in Virginia where you can just write yourself a check to be nominated for almost any political position. And talking about the harm reduction things that are going through California right now. A serious conversation about fentanyl and how they should crack down on it. And of course, we'll end today with our daily delight. A story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling from me. Let's jump in to the daily debate. So, it's a pretty quick one today. Who should bear the larger burden of inflation? Should it be the government that was likely causing it? or the people that put that government in power. And yes, I'm pretty sure you can all tell this is a very glib way of looking at it, because it's either, oh, it's just the government's fault, or the people that put the government in there. But as we'll explore in our first article, there's not really many counterarguments to the idea that it's mainly the government that causes inflation. But I'm not going to, you know, bury the lead too much. Let's jump straight into that one. Throw your comments in the comment section. Love to hear what you have to say. So our first article comes from Forbes. Green inflation in the end of capitalism. Lenin's thesis being tested. So, yes, before we go further, this is a proposal, or at least an analysis of a proposal from the great, late Lenin. Now, of course, yes, we we understand he hates capitalism. So, of course, he's going to say that the end of capitalism is nigh. And he's going to explain how he thinks it's going to come about. But this author breaks down what he was saying and how we can actually see some of these ideas not being brought up in like, oh, yes, we need to go and support Lenin, but how some of them have filtered their way into our modern economic thinking. So, this is... The concerning comments that came out of an executive in England very recently. Quote, in an interview on Wednesday, the Bank of England's chief economist, How Pew, said, quote, people need to accept that they're worse off and stop trying to maintain their real spending power by bidding up prices, whether through higher wages or passing the energy costs through onto consumers. End quote. So, Let's break it down. Hey, you need to stop, you know, aspiring to make more money. You, the average person, you, the average business owner, no, 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 Just accept the situation you're in. Inflation's going out of control. And now we need you to tamp down on your end because we as a government, we can't necessarily interfere too much. We need you to tamp down on your end and cut your gains and make sure that you're not getting as much real wage increases and giving them to your employees because it's actually spurring on inflation. How high and mighty do you have to be to say something like that? But, you know, I'll get back to the quote because, you know, I'm going to get a little bit too frustrated with this person. Quote, demands for higher pay were only generating as a result, he said. Inflation at 10.1% was five times higher than the Bank of England's 2% target in March. At this point, one might ask, why didn't the great economists of past generations think about Mr. Pills' tough love remedy? Stop higher wage claims for the working class folks. And as for you businessmen, stop passing on increased cost. Stop generating inflation. Workers clamoring for high wages to keep up with the high cost of living and businessmen trying to pass on higher costs to their customers to keep their business running certainly accelerate inflation. But they're not generating it end quote. So what the author's doing here, he's being a little bit sarcastic. He's pushing back. He basically did what I just said, which is at the end of the day, these businesses, they need to protect their bottom line. They are, there's two options here. There's they're greedy and they want money, which is totally okay. If you go into a business and you want to make money, if you're trying to protect your bottom line in high inflation times, you're going to have to pass on some of those higher costs to the customer. And then there's the noble argument for the second one, which is these businesses actually care about their workers. They want to make sure that their workers can go home to their families, supply food, make sure their kids can get a good education, that they can support their wife or husband, they can be there, and they can be a provider. So either way, you would spin the business side of this At the end of the day, they're going to have to pass on these costs. And then he's also telling the workers not to demand higher wages. Well, if it's costing them an extra 10 cents every single time they buy a piece of bread, or 50 cents every time they get a carton of eggs, or 5 cents every time they get milk, those sort of things add up. Obviously, they're going to have to ask for higher wages in order to just get by at the same level they were before. And of course, everybody during these times is going to have to cut back a little bit But even then, it might not be enough. Imagine you have five kids. Can you really cut down on food that much? Maybe you switch to a cheaper brand. You're still paying for five people in inflationary times. So it's a very simplistic view of how to deal with this problem. So let's jump to a second quote that really dives into the way that Lenin described the destruction of capitalism and doing it through I don't want to say currency manipulation, but the devaluing of currency. Quote, By a continuing process of inflation, governments can confiscate secretly and unobserved an important part of the wealth of their citizens. By this method, they not only confiscate, but they confiscate arbitrarily. Lenin was certainly right. There are no subtler, no sure means of overturning the existence ba- existing basis of society than to debauch the currency. The process engages all the hidden forces of economic law on the side of destruction. So we'll stop there for a second. This is coming from one of the great economists, or at least perceived great economists of the 20th century, John Maynard Keynes. And he's describing how Lenin said, at the end of the day, if you wanted to destroy society, if you want to end the capitalist system that is in place, then you're going to take a step back. You're going to say, okay, what's the mace of capitalism? What does everybody in a capitalist society need in order to transact and in order to actually even to put value to their work? They need a currency. They need money. And the government can step in and they can just arbitrarily print said currency, or at least nowadays they can with the economic system that we have. So this is actually a subtle way to take away citizens' wealth. And I've discussed it many a times, but if you haven't been here before for this, if they increase the money supply, then you're actually starting to devalue the current money that is out there. So let's say, for example, you have two bananas. And now somebody just gives you a third banana. If you are a starving person on the side of the street... Those two bananas, they, they have a lot of value for you. But now, now that you have a third banana, they actually have maybe just a little bit less. Because before, that first banana, that second banana, they meant so much to you, they may be the only meal you have for the next week. Now, that extra banana, while adding a little bit of benefit, devalues the other two just a tiny bit. So when you do this, you're actually taking away value from the people when you're doing it with currency. And this is a very subtle way to tax people and ensure that, oh, well, you know, inflation is really high right now. People are spending a lot of money. You know what? We can devalue the money they have, forcing different companies to raise their prices in response because they're like, oh, there's more money in the system now. We can raise our prices a little bit, or in some cases, we have to raise our prices in order to keep up with this inflation. And Keynes continues... Quote, today's wielders of Lenin's weapon of currency debauchment come from the ruling parties across the ideological spectrum in modern Western liberal democracies. The tragic flaw in Keynesian-inspired macroeconomics was the presumption that economic policy was conducted by a small group of wise and enlightened technocrats who act selflessly for the public interest, end quote. And this is not just a... Keynesian problem. This is actually a position worldview that a lot of people on the left and some of the neoconservatives over the last 20 years have really defaulted to. If you look at COVID as a absolutely phenomenal example, we instantly deferred to the experts. We looked at the CDC, Fauci. We instantly deferred to the people that are at the top of the ladder that have the most wisdom, that have spent the most time in these fields. And that is not necessarily a bad thing. Because if you're an economist who spent 20 years looking at the macro of the United States, of course you're going to have a great insight into how certain policies will affect citizens and the United States as a whole. But this default position that we have to just listen to the experts that the experts have the wisdom that we can't. We can't do our own research. We can't use our own intuition. We must just default to the experts. That position is very, I don't want to say elitist, but it does have an air of something of that kind. And on the population side, it's kind of taking away your agency. Instead of saying, oh, well, no, maybe I can go do my own research and I can do my own reading on the subject matter and gain a worthwhile opinion that could benefit people or at least say, hey, I don't actually agree with what these experts are saying. We just defer to the experts. And you can see where that has led in certain situations. We were probably in COVID lockdowns for way too long because the experts were trying to be extremely cautious because their jobs were on the line. If we just defer to the top class of Harvard, or the Chicago Institute of Economics, then everybody coming out of that group is probably going to have a very similar way of approaching an issue, rather than having a diverse set of opinions from different economic schools all around the United States that can provide a more in-depth analysis and look at issues from different points of view. I'm not saying they're not smart enough to understand that there are other points of view. What I'm saying is Very often, when you come out of a certain school, even if there are little differences in how you approach certain things, you still have a groupthink mentality that has been bestowed upon you by that school because you are all taking the same teachers for the most part. You're all reading the same books. You all have a similar perspective. So this is where it gets a little bit dangerous and we need to take a step back and reevaluate this system, especially when we know that they, the major economists right now are all too willing to push off the inflation, recession, or any issues of economic growth and stability to the future because this is a lot of what's been talked about. Well, we, we can actually push the debt ceiling off to the future because we're going to produce more things in the future where we can pay it then just like Social Security. Oh, well, we don't have to necessarily readjust everything. We can just raise the retirement age just a little bit so then the next generation, they can just keep paying into it and they can worry about it rather than actually sitting down addressing it and trying to stop the root of the problem. The root of the problem in this case with inflation is the spending. We are still spending out of control as the United States of America and other countries around the world and it's frustrating when you see comments from this banker the chief one of the chief executives at the Bank of England saying oh no 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 it's not we can't fix it as a government we we don't we can't fix it it needs to be the companies that are you know they need to stop passing on higher prices to their consumers people need to just realize what the situation is and stop asking for higher wages it is those elites that we are trusting and ch- have placed a lot of faith into who are now coming back and saying, Oh, no, 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 we're not actually looking out for your best interest. We're looking at the reality now, and you need to get over it, and you need to accept that this is the situation while I still get to have my extremely large salary that won't be too affected by inflation. Okay, that's enough rambling about that one. Let's jump to our second article. This one comes from Daily Costs. Can you write yourself a $200,000 check? And I know, when I first read this title, I was a little bit confused as to what it was asking, but it did catch my eye. And then as I read further, I started to understand a little bit more of what they're talking about and was a little concerned, if I'm going to be honest. So here's the background. In Virginia, this person is discussing what it's like to go to the political establishment and try to offer to run or try to work their way into running for a political position, such as a Senate seat or a House seat in Virginia in 2024. And when she went to go to these political people who have a little bit of sway, who normally get people involved and get them elected in certain areas, they asked her one simple question. Quote, They asked me one single question to determine my worth to run for office. And it wasn't about my community ties. It wasn't about my work I've done in the ER, the gun violence I saw, the abortion care I provided, the tragedies I see every day. It wasn't about the work I did on the Obama rapid response team in 2008 with Obama for America in 2008 and 2012, with Congressman Tom Perlow in 2008 and 2010, gubernatorial candidate, Craig Deans in 2009, it wasn't about the work I did in the Charlottesville city elections of 2011 or the work I did for the Clinton campaign in 2016. The one and only question asked about the issue was the most pressing for them, at least, was simply, quote, can you write yourself a $200,000 check, end quote. So the Think about that. And obviously she responded, no, you, I can't write myself. Like most of the people, not only in the state, but across the entire nation, they cannot write themselves a $200,000 check. So the reason this is important, the reason that this is an issue, is because Virginia has very different campaign finance laws than a lot of other states. Actually, let me jump to a quote from the article because it can summarize it a lot better than I can. Quote, since Virginia has no campaign finance laws whatsoever, Virginia politicians can take an unlimited amount of money from any source and use them on anything at all. Caribbean vacations, down payments on yachts, for example. This is a recipe for disaster of an unprecedented magnitude. End quote. So yeah, at the end of the day, if you can write yourself a two hundred thousand dollar check you're you're off to the races. You can fund your own campaign. you can get money from practically any source and justify it and say, "Oh yeah no, no. campaign expense, yeah this guy you know I know him, he's trying to fund my campaign. he believes in my vision. he's giving me a hundred thousand dollars rather than like how it is in most states or on the federal level where you have to have small dollar donations there's a cap to the amount that corporations and people can give they can't give a above, above a above a certain size gift so you can see how this you know is kind of a little little shady or at least it seems a little bit underneath the table that you can just give any amount from basically any source now let's be clear here this is not the case when people are in office If you remember a few years ago, our governor had a big scandal about a house that he practically got as a gift and a few different wedding gifts that he got. So if you're in office, this is not the case. But when it comes to actually running for office, getting into the positions, you can practically get money from any source without too much questioning. And, you know, I understand, or at least I could be compelled that there is a good reason for this. I have not read it. I have not seen it. I have not heard it from anybody that I have talked to. We had, at our college, we actually had two separate, we had a senator from Virginia and we had a congressperson from Virginia meet with one of our small clubs on campus. And I did not hear them talk about this issue at all. It wasn't at the forefront of my radar. And if it was, I would have asked. Because this is it's very interesting. It predisposes the people who have a large amount of means to jump into politics, the people who have large businesses or had large businesses and did very well to jump into politics, and then they can be friends, they can have conversations with some of their old corporate business partners. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, and Virginia is a very pro-corporate or pro-business state, but at the end of the day, you do have to ask, How fair is it to the common man who wants to step up, support their family, or deal with issues in their community? Like this person talked about how they stepped up, they've been working in the ER, they've been listening to their community, they've been doing lots of different things on the community level, and they want to represent the people around them in their district, and then they may get outspent by somebody who can just write themselves a $200,000 check. It brings up that conversation of, Well, do we want it to be people who have the means, who actually may actually have a little bit of extra time because they've worked hard their entire lives, they understand how business has worked, and they're able to write themselves a big check, get in and bring that business acumen to politics and that understanding of what's going on and that little bit of extra free time they may have to really educate themselves? Or do we want people who have really been on the ground, who have experienced what the community is experiencing, they are able to say, okay, I know what the key issues are in my district because I've been on the ground talking to these people every single day. They're my coworkers, They're my family members. They're the people I buy groceries from that I just have a random conversation with, which is more preferable, and maybe there's a balance to be had there. But this is a conversation that I thought was very interesting and should definitely be brought up. And this, this woman, she has a very, not a simple fix, but she does offer a fix. And I want to bring that one up because at the end of the day, whether you agree or don't agree with this policy, there's probably some retooling that needs to be done. Because it has been this way for about 15 years, she states during the article, if not a little bit longer. So maybe it is time to change up the system just a little bit, get some new blood in there. So let's see how she says that we should do that. Quote, we had a chance to change things when Democrats held a trifecta in the state government. But it would have meant we had to stop going out and finding candidates that can self-fund and start finding candidates who work for a living, who are connected to the problems faced by everyday people, who worry about being able to pay their bills and put food on the table for their kids. We'd have to go out and find people who really want to fix stuff because they understand firsthand the cost that will be incurred if they don't. But that's what we have to do, empower the people who are making things better at the community level. And this has worked before. If you remember Tulsi Gabbard, if you remember Bernie Sanders, and when I say it's worked before, you've seen these grassroots, that's the term that a lot of people throw around, you've seen these grassroots movements where people give small dollar donations, they fund campaigns on a personal level, they really know, hey, okay, this person has really helped my community. They've come to the different church organization meetings. They've come to the different volunteer hours where we help somebody repaint their house. They've done this, that, this, and that, this, and that. And they believe in that person, and then they can give small-dollar donations. On You know, for Tulsi and Bernie, it's a little bit different. They believe in the message that they were putting out there. But this person is really suggesting we need to make sure that it's actually viable for these grassroots candidates to get in. And... How you would probably restrict that on a government level in the Senate or the House in Virginia is you would have to pass a finance restriction bill that you can't give yourself a certain amount of funds. You can't have a certain amount coming from any other place, so you would have to have a limit. Maybe it's $100,000 from different PACs or maybe it's $50,000 from separate corporations. Even that seems like a lot. So moving forward if you really want to affect this change, what she's saying is we need to get grassroots candidates in there first. We need to get them past the self-funders. And then once they're in, they can actually put in place laws that restrict the self-funders and kind of change the paradigm. Now, at the end of the day, that may be a huge upheaval and it may affect a lot of things that we don't see coming. Maybe Virginia's system is so intricate and there's so many things going on behind the scenes that we don't truly understand. Maybe that is all possible. But you can't find out until you break stuff. You can't find out what's going to fall apart until you break it and then learn how to fix it. And I think a grassroots approach when, approach when it comes to getting people into office is always more respectable than people just giving out large checks and saying, oh, yeah, I like Jimmy. He, he did a good job in the corporate sphere, and I know he'll listen to my opinion versus the guy who goes to church every single week or the woman who goes to church every single week. They're listening to what the community has to say. They understand the struggles, and they're trying to look out for the people that they care about. All right, let's jump to our last article. It'll be a relatively quick one. We're talking about another state. We're talking about California, and this article comes from the Washington Free Beacon. Harm reduction. California Democrats kill legislation to crack down on fentanyl dealers. And the reason I chose this one, it's coming after the Virginia segment, is because these fentanyl deaths are terribly, terribly affecting broad swaths of California. Lots of different communities are losing their children, their husbands, their wives. They're losing people that are crucial to the social fabric to this fentanyl crisis. And it feels like some progressives and some Democrats in California are stalling. And they're saying, hey, okay, well, well, we're not going to come down. We're not going to be too harsh. We don't want to ruin these people's lives just because they're addicted or they made a bad choice. And there's a valid, valid piece to that conversation and argument as well. But they're kind of tiptoeing around it, and I think my opinion is they're not going far enough in either direction. Either you should outright ban it, make it extremely hard, to get fentanyl and really crack down on dealers, or you should completely legalize it, make it so that it is safe for people to use who are addicted, and then get rid of the social stigma so they could be more willing to go to rehab centers. And then also, if it's legal, then you can have specialized fentanyl rehab centers, and there might be more of a market there for people to step in and start really addressing the addiction issue in these communities. So, we'll start with the quote. Progressive California lawmakers bent to political pressures and revived a handful of bills this week to crack down on fentanyl dealers, only to turn around and kill or weaken most of the measures. With overdose deaths accelerating in California, the State Assembly Public Safety Committee on Thursday blocked two of the bills, which would have strengthened punishments for dealers who kill or seriously injure someone with fentanyl or are caught with enough of the synthetic drug to kill thousands of people. The panel also loosened a proposed ban on dealers carrying guns before punting the bill along with a measure to increase penalties for fentanyl trafficking on social media, end quote. So if you didn't understand what they were going through there or maybe you were hit with a lot of information, they were told or they their community members said, hey, we really want to address this fentanyl issue We want you to take on these bills and really crack down on these fentanyl dealers who are hurting our communities and sometimes could be carrying enough synthetic drug to kill thousands of people. And they're like, Oh, yeah, of course, we will. And then when they got into committee, they're like, Oh, well, actually, we don't want to be too harsh here. We're going to strike this amendment. Oh, we're actually going to, you know, we're going to send this on to the next chamber. We don't want to address this here today. We feel like we need more comprehensive understanding of the issues. We need a more comprehensive solution. Whatever weasel words, whatever weasel technique they used to get out of actually dealing with the issues. And they didn't get away with it. To be honest, they really got called out by the only Republican on the Assembly. And I'll read a quote from him right now. Quote, Assemblyman John Parsons, the only Republican to present a bill in the committee, criticized Democrats' harm reduction approach as inadequate quote, the reality is that we have dealers in Fresno with 2,000 pills that the worst you can do is a misdemeanor, he told the panel. They're out in two days. If we really cared about addicts, we would also care about their dealers who are out on the streets churning more and more, end quote. And that is a good point. If you really care about the people that are terribly affected by this, one way to make sure that they don't necessarily get the product, is to really come down hard on the dealers and the people that are trafficking the drug. That's pretty straightforward. And to give the progressives their due, I think that they are worried about the addicts, but they're also worried about the withdrawal crisis, the amount of people that will be drastically harmed by not necessarily being able to have access to this drug that they are addicted to. And then when they go through the withdrawal process, they'll be on the streets and it will lead to worse repercussions. Now, you know, there's lots of different conversations to be had there. There's lots of different moral arguments to be weighed there. But we at least have to give them their due. And probably, I'm not saying that's actually what they believe. I don't know any of them personally. But I'm trying to steel man their argument a little bit. But this is not something you can just punt down and decide not to talk about. If you really do believe what I just said or if they have some other position as to why they don't want to deal with it, rather than just hide behind the committee and punt these things down the road and say we can't address them right now, come out, tell me exactly why you don't want to crack down on these dealers. Tell me exactly why you think it will be ineffective and then present evidence that that would be the case. And then you can have an actual conversation about the moral judgments that are involved in this sort of battle. But it's not to say that they didn't do nothing. There were three relatively incremental measures uh, against fentanyl dealers. Quote, one, to boost their sentence to match those of cocaine and heroin sellers. Another, to push law enforcement cooperation against them. And a third, to launch a task force to study fentanyl trafficking. End quote. The first one, step in the right direction, increase their sentences so that it matches some of the other drugs that are, I believe, Schedule 1 on the list there in California. And then also, the next two are kind of... eh, They're they're something, but they're kind of timid because they... Or, sorry, tepid because they don't actually explain how to do it. Push law enforcement cooperation against them. How are they doing that? Are they going to different counties and saying, hey, okay, I want you to interact with somebody in Maricopa County, and then you guys... Sorry, that's in Arizona. L.A. County and San Francisco County, you guys can go to each other, share your information. Maybe there's common dealers who are coming across the area. They don't specify what that is, but it, it could be beneficial. And then the last one is to launch a task force to study fentanyl trafficking. Another half measure, but it's something. And at least public pressure worked to some degree. Public pressure worked. People came out. They said, hey, we want you to address this issue. And they at least got some small things passed through this committee to... Try to help people out or at least address the issue or crisis, as some people would call it. All right, let's jump to our daily delight. This one comes from Adventure. Adorable baby baby bison holds up traffic at Yellowstone National Park. So you know, I went to Yellowstone when I was a little bit younger. And when you go to Yellowstone, you should expect to be held up by some sort of baby animal or multiple baby animals. And once again, the baby animals reign supreme. Quote, a tiny bison calf brought traffic to a stand at Yellowstone National Park last week when it decided to take a rest in the middle of the road, end quote. But it it wasn't just him. You know, he did have a little bit of a protective detail on all sides. Quote, the tiny calf's mom took the opportunity to groom it and the rest of the herd blocked traffic until the youngster was ready to move on, end quote. And if you want to see any of the cute photos or videos of this little guy or read any of today's articles, there'll be a link in the description below the like and subscribe button where you can find those as well as links to the podcast on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcasts, Podvine, and the Twitter handle at your daily flip where you can come directly to the YouTube video because I tweet out a link on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. With all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.